Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 181 of the In Squash podcast. And uh, today I'm delighted to have on for maybe, I believe it might be his fourth appearance, a uh, friend of the podcast, Rob Dinnerman. And uh, he comes on today to talk about his new book, The History of Brunswick School Squash. He's written several books uh, on squash, uh, particularly in terms of varsity squash in the U.S. He's also written a fantastic book, uh, The Sheriff of Squash, about Sharif Khan. Uh, several books you can check out on uh, his website maybe online or at the Daily Squash Report. They sometimes have some of his uh, materials up there. But uh, today we're talking about uh, the history of Brunswick School Squash and uh, it's, an, it's, a, it's an amazing read and it takes you through uh, the beginnings of a squash program, the fledgling uh, program that it started out as and then how uh, where it ends up, uh, where it is today. Uh, one of the strongest uh, high school squash programs, if not the strongest, over the past uh, 10 years or so in the country and uh, Rob comes on to talk about that in only the, the way that he can it's an it's amazing just how much knowledge this man has on every aspect of U.S. squash hardball varsity high school squash uh, you name it and he has the ability to, to just recall a match or a rally that took place many years ago like it was yesterday and every detail of it and every uh, exciting, dramatic aspect of it. And uh, he comes on and brings that with him today, talking about the history of Brunswick School Squash and also uh, the retirement of Dave Talbot, 38 years at the helm of the Yale Squash Program. Uh, Rob is a, Rob's alma mater is Yale, and uh, he's written extensively about Dave uh, over the years and he has uh, a lot uh, to say in, in homage to uh, Dave as he uh, passes the torch on to uh, interim head, head coach Lin uh, Leung and then also they're actively searching uh, for a new men's head coach. Uh, he talks uh, at length about uh, Dave Talbot and uh, also uh, just in terms of uh, the history of Brunswick School Squash uh, if you're looking to pick up the book uh, where uh, you can find it uh, by contact Contacting Libby Edwards at the Brunswick School, and uh, her email address is ledwards at brunswickschool.org. I think on the podcast, uh, I'm not sure if Rob uh, mentioned the email or not, but if he did, make sure that it's the correct one. It's uh, ledwards at brunswickschool.org. So I know you're going to really enjoy this when we talk about those two things, as well as uh, uh, several other things, including the state of uh, hardball squash, double squash, pro squash in the United States, given the seriousness of the pandemic that we're going through. And uh, before we get into it, though, I just want to remind you about our sponsor, Active Scout. Rob finally came on, and what a fantastic episode that was. If you haven't listened to it already, Rob Eberhardt's recent episode where he talks about the growth of the game, not necessarily uh, the app Active Squash, but that is what the app is. It's Active, sorry, not Active Squash, Active Scout. Uh, Active Scout is an app which uh, we all should have at the, you know, just playing as a in management uh, coaching and uh, it's something that uh, you should look into if you're interested in working with your squash uh, club or your squash community to really help grow the game and that's kind of where we're at right now because it's stagnating and we want to uh, keep the game alive and try to find ways once we get it back on two feet to get it growing and Active Scout is working towards that so check out the app Active Scout and you can visit the website at 
activescout.com. So let's get into this now. Episode 181, friend of the podcast, Rob Dinnerman. Yeah. Now, uh, I just wanted to, uh, to mention to you, Rob, uh, first of all, it's great to have you back. I think this is your, your fourth appearance on, on the podcast. And uh, now if I look back, I think episode 20 uh, over two years ago was, uh, was the first time you were on. And I think at that time, if memory serves, uh, Zoom was, uh, was new to you and to me pretty uh, relatively new. Uh, but now you must be uh, uh, fairly fairly adept at uh, navigating uh, a Zoom call, eh? That's become more and more the way people communicate these days. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember that first episode was uh, was kind of uh, even back in those uh, early days for me that uh, using Zoom and how to record, how to edit, all this stuff uh, was relatively uh, new to me, but. Uh, now it's uh, it's part of the new normal. That's for sure, and maybe and maybe that'll be true for a while to come. Yeah, one hundred percent. Now um, it's just uh, you know obviously we're having I've got you uh, here today because you have a new book out, uh, a history of uh, Brunswick School squash, has uh, been released just uh, a little while ago. Uh, now before we get into the the nitty gritty uh, of the book, there I was just wondering. Uh, what was it? Uh, and you know, the book. Uh, once you've read, I've I've read uh, almost uh, half of it and, and skimmed through the the final parts of it. But uh, once you've read it, uh, it's pretty much self-explanatory why uh, why you would write about Brunswick School Squash. But uh, just for everyone else, uh, what was it about uh, Brunswick Squash that gave you the inspiration to uh, to uh, add this to one of your to your list of books that you've written? Well, they had had, uh, I mean, the U.S. High School Nationals is a tournament that uh, that U.S. Squash has run since 2004. And I followed it to some extent. Uh, it, it, there were, I remember very clearly in 2013 when uh, it had to be called up because Superstorm Nemo had been pounding the East Coast that entire period. And the event was called off and there was a whole controversy of uh, U.S. Squash initially didn't want to return everybody's entry fees because they'd already incurred some fixed costs. Uh, uh, there was no way anybody could travel anywhere. The, the entire uh, Northeastern corridor was absolutely drenched that whole weekend. Mm -hmm. And it was actually that controversy that was sort of in the, in the news. I remember dailysquashreport.com covered it, et cetera. And that sort of ironically brought the high school nationals kind of more onto my radar screen than it had been before. And uh, I've sort of followed a little more closely ever since. But the real motivation for um, for writing this book now is that uh, the longtime 35-year coach at Brunswick School, uh, Jim Stevens, uh, retired this past spring. And the school wanted to, there were two things that happened. Number one, he his retirement made at least some of the more involved squash alumni parents want to sort of have some sort of document that would be written in tribute to him because he'd been there for 35 years. And more to the point, uh, Brunswick School, which had been very frustrated, had been frustrated many times in this tournament, uh, had to finally won the tournament for the first time in 2015 after losing seven times in the finals spread over the previous 10 years. And having achieved that breakthrough, they've actually won it five of the past six years, including the last three years. 
And this past year, not only did they win, not only were they undefeated all season and win, won this tournament, but they didn't lose a match all season. Every one of their dual meet and tournament matches was 7-0. So uh, that and nothing like that had ever been even vaguely achieved by even the great schools that had won that event in the past, like Episcopal Academy, uh, Haverford School, Lawrenceville School, et cetera. So it, not only was this great legendary coach retiring, but he was retiring uh, in this sort of blaze of glory with yeah. a season that really almost can't be improved upon in terms of, you know, not losing a single match during the entire year. So the timing was, there was a confluence there. And uh, I'd been speaking with parents of Brunswick players uh, who for many years about this book, they all would say, we have to wait until Coach Stevens retires. But once he, now that he has retired, I, they wanted to write the book and I wanted to write the book. And so uh, we agreed to do so. And uh, I started in probably May uh, and um, finished the writing probably in a little, not too long after Labor Day. It always takes a few months to, handle the production part, getting the photos, yeah. knowing where they're going to place them, the layout, et cetera. Some great uh, photos the, in there, Rob, by the way, some really good stuff. I mean, the, the, the parents and, you know, the, the, the old players, the alumni, the school, uh, I'm sure they're just uh, so pleased with the, with the final product. They've, they've, they've been very happy about it. And I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that. Uh, the photos uh, in the first part of the book are actually pretty grainy. And you can, uh, right around 2000, uh, they got a guy named Peter Mahakian, who's a very good photographer. All the photos from 2000 to the present were taken by him. And they're really very, very high quality. But it was sort of, just sort of almost by coincidence, uh, you can almost mark the progress of the program with the improvement in the photos, because this was yeah. a team that in the first year of their existence, couldn't not only couldn't beat anybody, but the other schools wouldn't even schedule them because it was too much of a waste of their time. Well, that, uh, that's sort of what I wanted to get into uh, here in the beginning. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the, the whole story plays out. It's, it's very interesting the way uh, Brunswick squash sort of started out. They weren't, you know, they, they kind of got in, uh, I think, uh, uh, I mean, you're, you're the, uh, the historian here, but I think they sort of got into the squash uh, game a little bit later on. I mean, in the late uh, 70s, I think it was, or mid-70s. Was that, no, they, they, their first year was actually 70, 71. 70, but, 71. But that, that and those early days uh, were, 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 were not very, uh, like you were just about to say, uh, they were pretty challenging and they went through some, some growing pains uh, up until I think uh, the mid-90s or early 90s. Anyways, talk about the, those early years, those growing pains, and then uh, when, uh, when Jim came on to the scene. Absolutely. Uh, they um, and so since seventy seventy one was their first year. There's also the sort of arithmetic coincidence of the fact that this past season was the fiftieth year of their existence, and that is indeed a much shorter history than many of the other schools I've written. Episcopal Academy, which has won this event uh, three four years in a row, and which has had a storied squash program, many of whose graduates have gone and become members of the U.S. Squash Hall of Fame, they began squash in the early in the late 1920s. Yeah. So they'd been around for four, they'd been playing competitive for 40 years before Brunswick even began. Uh, the Brunswick program began almost by accident. Uh, the son of uh, one of the headmasters played the game and, and 
his father and other parents wanted squash to become part of the part of what they offered in winter sports. Uh, the first season, they didn't have they didn't have a, a court they didn't have courts in the school mm. actually for their first thirty years. It wasn't until two thousand yeah. that there were that there was a facility built there, a very nice facility, uh, and they barely. I mean, the first year they they barely had a team. They they played Choate's JV and didn't win a single match. I mean, they really were just people who couldn't make the hockey and basketball teams at uh, yeah. during the winter at, at Brunswick and, and wanted to try this new sport. And uh, I think a really interesting um, uh, sort of marker of how that, far th that program progressed is that the first time the team made an extended overnight trip which was uh, during the 73-74 season, the 72-73 season. Uh, not only did they won there, they were going to play two schools. They, they played one school in the afternoon and managed to win. They stayed at a hotel that night. And at the hotel, a number of the players got on, became very, obviously had something to drink, which they shouldn't inebriated. have in the first place. <laughs> and became quite inebriated and very unruly. Yeah. The coach at the time was so angry that he was actually going to drive home that night without even playing the match the next day. Mm -hmm. But because it was already midnight, they stayed overnight, played the next day, lost very badly. And when, the, and when they got back to school, a few things happened. The coach quit. The players were all suspended. The players were all suspended for a week and squash was suspended for the, there was no squash for the rest of that entire season. Yeah. By contrast, the last trip they took, which was at the end of this past season, the in, in March of 2020, uh, to Trinity College for the New England Interscholastic Championships. They not, not only did they win that tournament for the ninth straight time, a tournament they couldn't even get into for the first 20 years, but they won again without losing a match. So uh, it was exactly the, the mirror opposite of what had happened in their first trip. And it, it's sort of a... I think a revealing symbol of how far that program progressed. Squash was at most a sort of uh, low-key recreational activity for really the first really 15 or so years. They, they eventually got some players. They had a respectable team. They played a schedule. All their, all their practice matches had to be played at, other, at private clubs in the Greenwich area. In most cases, the parents of those players were a member of one of those clubs or another. We're talking about the Field Club of Greenwich, the Greenwich Country Club. And they would play in the mid-afternoon, which thankfully was during that period between the lunchtime games and the evening games. And they, the courts were empty for the most part during that time. And they, they, the clubs were nice enough to let the players practice there. And they spent an hour or two in the mid-afternoon. So it was, it was very, very... Um, uh, sort of seat of the pants type stuff. Uh, they they often they often switched venues when one venue suddenly became unavailable, and so the program really stumbled along. Jim Stevens became the coach in 1985 after the 1985 season, meaning beginning 1985-86. He was 40 years old. He'd been the the head pro at the Field Club of Greenwich for uh, over a dozen years before becoming before moving to to Brunswick to teach middle school math and to coach the squash team. Even during those first 15 years, they, they still didn't have a, a, a courts of their own, mm. uh, but they gradually got uh, better. Uh, in 1990, 
they tried to get into the New England Interscholars Tournament. And the person who ran the New England Association at the time was the coach at Choate. And when, and when Brunswick played Choate, Choate won so handily that the coach sort of told Stevens, I don't think you guys are ready to be in this tournament quite yet. And actually, they were allowed in. They gradually sort of progressed in terms of up the ladder of the, of the New England schools. They, fought, they won the New England Interscholars for the first time in 1996. At the time, there was no there was no at least internet in terms of keeping, there was no running score being kept. Right. And after all the matches were over, uh, the, some, the statisticians actually had to tabulate each match to see which school had won. There was a, there was a half hour period between yeah. when the matches ended and when it was known which school had won the tournament. Wow. Uh, the yeah. fact that Brunswick won is remarkable. There were only five, there, there, at the time, there were five players in the uh, tournament. There was an, an A tournament for the for the number one player at each school, a B tournament for the number two players, et cetera. And you won a, you got points for your school every time you won a match. At the end of the weekend, the school whose players had accumulated the most points was declared the New England Interscholastic Champion. Right. Uh, as I said, the number one player who was who was expected to do very well in that tournament. Uh, was found to uh, to be too was found to be too ill right before the event began to be allowed to play. So basically, that means that uh, Brunswick got zero points at the number one spot, and had and the four remaining players had to accumulate more points than every other school's five players. Okay. And nobody really thought that would happen. That kind of liberated the players to sort of play their best and not worry because they assumed they would never win with a zero score at number one. Anyway, it took about a half hour to tabulate. By the narrowest of margins, it turns out Brunswick's four players had accumulated a few more points than the second place finisher. And one yeah. of the memorable parts about that weekend is that after it was announced who had won, uh, the captain and the coach came to the podium to get the trophy in absolute deafening silence. And that's because the boarding schools that had been dominating that tournament for all those years, Deerfield, Exeter, and Andover, the New England prep schools, really never recognized, or at that point at least, certainly refused to recognize Brunswick as sort of being one of them because Brunswick was a day school. Right. It was not a, it was not a boarding school. And they, they'd been allowed into the tournament. Nobody took them seriously. They, weren't, they were sort of considered an outlier. And really, when they first won, they no one really was willing to acknowledge that they were the real champions. Mm -hmm. uh, by contrast, by the way, when they won in 2020, Coach Stevens was given a Lifetime Achievement Award by the, by the New England Coaches Association, which well, also shows that, how... I think that really sums it up uh, in terms of, you know, overall what the book uh, uh, portrays. It's, it's the, you know, the grab where it started, sort of those early growing pains, and then uh, where it ended up uh, there, as you mentioned, in 2020 and, and the successes and uh, the struggles to to get there, but uh, you know, and and the the book is chock full of uh, lots of uh, incredible anecdotes, like the the ones that you just laid out. Um, now, if you don't mind, Rob, I mean, you mentioned uh, uh, the legend uh, Jim Stevens, and you know, he started uh, the program pretty much. He did. He wasn't their first coach, but you know, he he took it over, and then uh, you know, brought them you know, through, through some tough times all the way up until uh, where they are today. So just in brief, uh, you know, for people who, you know, might be listening and not know much uh, about uh, Jim uh, as a, as a mm -hmm. coach, uh, just to sort of 
what was he what was he like uh, as a coach? Uh, what was his uh, reputation in terms of that? He was a very, he was a very uh, he was uh, when when I got this assignment, the first call I made was to him. He had just retired. I wasn't altogether sure. Uh, he's he just he was just on the eve of his seventy fifth birthday. I wasn't altogether sure exactly how into it he was going to be or how much he how engaged he was going to be he told me right away rob there's going to be you and me and from that moment on he was in i was the real key to the success of this book is that the degree to which he was incredibly engaged from day one mm -hmm. whenever i needed a phone number or anyone to contact he got it for me within a couple of hours uh he and his wife because Brunswick was completely locked down by then. The school, you know, closed probably in March or April, and the whole spring the classes were remote. Um, uh, he got permission to get to go into the school. He and his wife uh, Xeroxed the yearbook pages from the annual yearbook for every year that that were devoted to squash. That meant lugging those heavy books up and down uh, a flight of stairs to get to the Xerox machine. Uh, this was a, this had to have taken them several hours. If I'd known what was going to be involved, I probably wouldn't have allowed him to do it. But he was that determined to get documentation he knew I needed to me. Mm -hmm. He also uh, contacted the Greenwich Time, which is sort of the local a Greenwich newspaper and got them to send me copies of the articles they'd written about squash. And what I'm basically saying is he was an incredibly active and enthusiastic and eager and engaged ally. And that's kind of all in a kind of quiet, low key fashion. We were on the phone probably a half dozen times a day when I was in the real meat of the research. And that's kind of the way he, I think it was the coach. He's low key. Uh, but he is also he's determined and he communicates that to the players, not in an authoritarian my way, the highway way. But but just because it's there's also a certain decency about him, which I think kind of shamed, you know, adolescent players can get a little wild sometimes. Yeah. I think that they so sense the sort of basic goodness in him and the decency that it almost shamed them into acting in, in, in the appropriate way. Uh, and when you speak with the players, they're extremely loyal to him. Um, There's so many anecdotes or different interviews that I went through, and I interviewed probably a hundred or so of the people who played squash at Brunswick. Um, and they'd sort of summarize, they'd always end up saying, it all comes back to Jim. And, uh, and it really does, I mean, there were, the, the story of the success of the Brunswick program really is also related to the degree to which the town, the town of Greenwich supported that team. The pros of the clubs, of the Greenwich clubs, not only allowed the players to practice, not only the Greenwich clubs, also the clubs in Westchester nearby, the Appawamas Club, the Westchester Country Club. Not only did they allow the players to practice there, which a lot of clubs would not have done, even if the courts were empty, but they also allowed the, mem the, the players on the team, even if their parents weren't members, to come over to practice with the, with the junior players of, the, of their club. That's almost unheard of. This was kind of a, a community effort that sort of just decided we're going to support this team. And that's really a very, very, I don't know of a parallel with that in, anywhere in high school squash.
Well, you can see how that play, I mean, just reading uh, the book that, you know, the half of the book that I did read, uh, you can just see how that plays out uh, in, in, uh, in the story that's been told. Now, there are so many, uh, you know, uh, interesting stories and success stories and, uh, you know, great squash stories in the book. But one uh, in particular is uh, the, the story of uh, Will Broadbent. He was one of their, the top players and maybe one of the, if not the first, a really successful player to come out of their program. He was a top junior, young junior, and then he went on uh, to do some really good things for, for Brunswick. So if you don't mind, uh, Rob, if, uh, just speak to, uh, to who Will Broadbent is and uh, his impact uh, when he arrived uh, there at Brunswick uh, for their team. I'm happy to do that. Uh, Will is not only, was not only the, the first you know, great, great uh, player, but he really is the best player um, in terms of what he's done in college, et cetera, to ever represent uh, Brunswick. He actually uh, made the team for the first time, the high school team, for the first time as a sixth grader. Mm-hmm. Um, he is, he is the, he's the youngest person ever to have played actually on a high school team. And uh, he was, um, he was as, as a sixth grader, he was part of the 96 team, which was, which was the first team, as I mentioned, the first Brunswick team to win the New England Scholastic Championships after they hadn't even been allowed in until a few years before that. Um, he was one of the players, uh, his parents were members at the Racket Club of, of uh, uh, the Racket Club of Greenwich. He was a player who took up the game obviously quite early, um, was exposed to instruction by very, very good pros in that area. Many of the pros at these clubs are people who were former stars of the on the on the PSA tour, who after retiring from playing, you know, got these nice jobs at these clubs. Uh, he was um, he was the number. He was actually a team co-captain in his eighth grade year, which means he was five years in that in that uh, spot, and. Um, he then became, again, he was just a very successful player at Brunswick. His last two years, he won the, um, the A division of the New England Interscholastic Championship, sort of, which, and whoever wins that is considered the New England Interscholastic Champion. Uh, he, was, he then went to Harvard, and he was a four-time first-team All-American, class of 06. He won some major uh, sort of student-athlete awards at Harvard. He, after graduating from, and led Harvard to a couple of Ivy League championships, he got to the finals of the NCAA individual championship uh, his sophomore year at Harvard, which was 2004. Um, It was his, as it happens, the class, the the number one player in the 2002-03 season at Harvard and Yale and Princeton were all freshmen. And those players... Were, were broadbent at Harvard. Julian Illingworth at Yale. Julian would win the, yeah. the SL Green U.S. National Championship eight years in a row and nine yeah. times overall. And as you probably know, played with distinction on the PSA Pro Tour for yeah, you know, he close to the decade. Top, close to the top 20 in the world at one point. Yeah, he was, I think, 20. It was right around the 25 mark. So you're absolutely right about that. And the, the Princeton number one player was Yasser Al-Halabi, who was the only player to win the men's individual intercollegiate championship all four years. Right. So uh, it was both his good fortune and to some degree Broadbent's bad fortune to be an exact contemporary of these other two great players. Um, It's possible he might have won the intercollegiates if Yasser hadn't been in the way, you know, his sophomore year. 
Uh, well, he, and he was definitely, uh, I mean, in terms of Brunswick squash, though, I mean, he, he's someone that, uh, you know, in terms of their squash, he was the kind of uh, their, their first uh, elite uh, player to make it. That's uh, right. Yeah. That's right. That's he also right. had a successful uh, international. He did well internationally as a junior, I believe. In the junior tournament, that's right. He, uh, he, he played in things like the Scottish Open and the, and the British Open and, and was very successful in them. He won a total, I think, of 13 between doubles and um, uh, which he also he actually won the junior doubles won the junior double championships with his older sister Avery Broadbent, who okay. was uh, the number one player at Greenwich Academy, which is sort of the the girls' counterpart in Greenwich to Brunswick. Uh, okay. uh, so, he, uh, so he was he he is the only squash player at Brunswick to have been inducted into the Brunswick Athletics Hall of Fame. Oh, that happened in twenty eighteen. And, he also uh, he played. Might, he, he might he, also be the only squash player to ever make. Uh, didn't didn't he make it to uh, Sports Illustrated? Uh, there were. You mean the, the faces in the crowd? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he was in. He, he, might, was, he might be he one of the only the only squash players to ever sort of get get any mention in, in that magazine. That although <laughs> there are some other Brunswick players who've been in the in the face in the crowd as well. Subsequent to that, uh, so um, in fact, David Jacobucci who was uh, the number one player in 2016. Uh, he was the captain of that 2016 team, which he led to the U.S. National High School Championship. Um, his, uh, his sister was the, uh, his twin sister the same year led the Greenwich Academy to the National Championship. And the two of them were in a face in the crowd entry for what they'd done captaining the boys and girls teams to, the, to their respective high school national championship. Right on. So there have been other pe people in the in the in the face in the crowd. Okay. Uh, now the book is full of uh, fantastic uh, stories. Now for people who don't maybe not follow uh, U.S. Uh, intercollegiate or high school or prep school squash, uh, there is a little bit of in international uh, flavor in terms of an anecdote. There's a, a nice little story about the the team's connection with uh, Pontefract Malcolm. Uh, Willstrip. I don't know if you you wouldn't mind sharing that one with us, would you? Uh, that's a that's a, that was a great story. That happened in the uh, at the beginning of the 2017-18 seats, and that was so that was much more recent than what we what we've been discussing. Yeah. And um, and the team did go uh, overseas uh, during, I think it was during the Christmas break. I believe it was. It was either Christmas or Thanksgiving in the late fall, sort of before the the dual meet season picked up. They went over there, and there was one day that they were coached throughout the day by Malcolm Willstrup. And Malcolm, um, uh, Malcolm can be feisty. And, mm -hmm. uh, and he definitely wants, it makes it very clear right from the beginning who's the boss, so to speak. He's a very, very good coach, but yeah. it, he really does want things to be done his way. And uh, in fact, at the very beginning, this isn't, an, uh, 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 I'm not sure if this is in the book or not, but at the very beginning as the players were all um, were all in one of the courts. He told them to leave the court and go into the gallery and then sort of uh, scolded them for leaving the court before letting him leave the court first. Uh, okay. the, so, I mean... Uh, old school, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, very, very old school and old too. He was probably about 80 at the time. Um, uh, and at one point, Jim Stevens was just standing next to the group and he told him to sit down, which I thought was a little forward given Stevens, you know, he was... Any other coach would have taken offense to it. And it's a sign of how unflappable 
Stevens is that he knew that it was more important for the player to get the benefit of what Malcolm was about to share yeah. Yeah. than anything else. And he just sort of let let it pass without without remonstrating. Yeah, All the players takes, said yeah, that takes that, a good character to 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 manage that. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, Wilstrip is a James, Mr. Wilstrip is a bit of a character, and that conveyed itself during that during that day. But mm-hmm. the, to the to a man, those players will tell you that that was probably the, the the best individual day squash experience they ever had. That they learned a tremendous amount from him, which they took home and got to apply once they returned. And they were incredibly respectful of the fact that even though that day didn't end until like seven o'clock at night and beginning at like nine in the morning, that Mr. Wilstrip was on his feet and instructing them and coaching them the entire time. He was, he was probably 80-ish at the time. He never took a break. He, his attention never flagged. His energy never seemed to flag. And it was every one of them regards that as an incredibly valuable and exciting and important experience. That's, uh, that's and, cool. and then after returning, after returning back to campus and the, with the season beginning, they then won the first of their three straight national team cha- high school national team championships. Well, the book is uh, again the history of Brunswick, a history of Brunswick squash, and it's a fantastic read. Lots of great. I mean, it's a it's a it's a great sort of tale, you know, from from humble and very uh, struggling there in the beginning uh, up until the successes that you just described. Uh, and the, let me just say about this too, the struggles, um, it, you know, even it occurred after they had great facilities, et cetera. This is, it, again, I said this at the beginning, but it's really, I think, important to remember. They lost, the first U.S. High School National Championship was in 2004. It came down it was three all. It was uh, at that point they were, there were seven players involved, as there are now as well. It came down. To, there were three all in matches. It came down actually, as this sometimes happens, not to the two best players, but to two players down, uh, quite far down on the ladder. Both of them freshmen, high school uh, ninth graders, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and Robbie Ber- Berner from for Brunswick and Will Birchfield, who later played at Trinity for Lawrenceville. They went to a fifth game. Birchfield wound up winning, so Lawrenceville won that championship. That was the first of seven times that Brunswick got to the finals of the U.S. High School National Championships and lost all seven. Some of them in very – some of them once was was by a school whose bottom three players – would not have even made Brunswick JV. They were that inferior to the, but the, but that one year, Avon Old Farms recruited three Egyptians at the mm-hmm. top three spots, yeah. three Egyptians, and there was one very good American player. Every match they won was 4-3 by sweeping the top four, including, of course, in the final with Brunswick. So they lost seven times before they, they won it for the first time. That would have broken the spirit of almost any program and almost any coach. Mm-hmm. And in yeah. 2015, 2015, when they finally had their breakthrough, it was three all, they're playing Belmont Hill. The number one player, David Jacobucci, had to play Timmy Brownell. Timmy Brownell was the number one ranked junior in the under 19 in the country. He had just won the US Junior Open, beating a whole bunch of players from overseas. He was an overwhelming favorite to win that match. Yakubuchi had an, also also had an upper respiratory infection. He had a hot shooting day, and he managed to beat uh, to beat him. So really, it was right on the cusp of being eight straight final round losses. Yeah, yeah it sounds like and, that. Uh, and Yakubuchi pulled off really maybe the most dramatic upset 
in the history of that of that tournament. And then, as I say, they won it the next year and won it in 2018, 19, and 20. Well, uh, maybe it bodes well for the Buffalo Bills this weekend. Uh, <laughs> that's that's well, very, very possible. Uh, that's <laughs> but, very uh, possible. Well, that's, that's fantastic, uh, Rob. Now, uh, you know, uh, the the book is available on your website, is it? Uh, no, uh, the book, uh, in order to get a copy of the book for anybody who wishes to, they would need to contact Brunswick, Brunswick School itself. Um, okay. Uh, uh, the um, it's uh, there's a woman named Libby Edwards who uh, it's l edwards at brunswickschool.org to contact her or to call the school. They have plenty of uh, available copies that they can make that they can you know ship and make available. Uh, once that supply runs out, which we think will happen fairly soon, uh, there uh, many another run will be ordered. Uh, uh, the there was a, a, a pretty big article in the Greenwich Time announcing the release of that book a few weeks ago. And there have been many, many orders that have been placed in by the larger Greenwich community, even people who had nothing to do with Brunswick and others in the area. And we're expecting, I mean, it's, it's really, it's obviously a story of success, but it's also just a compelling, there's a lot of compelling personal stories involved Absolutely. here. Absolutely, yeah, some great stories in there, uh, some great characters uh, throughout the book. Uh, right, there's one Gary. There's one thing I have, one story I have to say about about uh, Coach Stevens. Um, yes. One of the younger coaches uh, came uh, on as an assistant program, and he asked Coach Stevens a question that I think a lot of teachers and coaches are trying to figure out which is where do you draw the line between being the coach teacher of a, of a, of a student and being a friend to the student. There's there's that line that that yeah. most people straddle. And Stevens, and I don't know if it works for others, but it somehow works for him. He said there is no line that you can be a friend to the to the students and also the authority figure coach. And right. that's all. That's I don't think most teachers would answer that. And I'm not even sure if that works for most students, but it, it does work for him somehow. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the other yeah, thing I want to say- That's a question that, you know, I've had Paul Asciante, Mike Way, uh, I've had some of the younger guys on, and uh, that's a question that sort of, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't even, I think Paul would definitely ha have an answer for that, and, and Mike did. But I think some of the younger coaches sort of not really sure how to straddle that line, or they sort of uh, learn- they're still learning how to manage those situations, but a guy yeah, like, and, like James. And Paul, is, and Paul is great at it. He really yeah. is. But yeah. I don't think even Paul would say that there is no line between being no. a friend and <laughs> the coach. And no. that's actually what, what Stephen said. Uh, he was named uh, the USOC um, uh, recipient of the USOC, uh, uh, the American counter, USOC uh, Award of the Year. He was given both the coaching honor and a teaching honor and a citizenship honor in a 16-month period by the uh, by the various uh, bodies in, in squash and in the case of Greenwich, the Greenwich um, the Greenwich uh, Council. So he really is uh, he really does do it. He, is, he really has succeeded on on all these different fronts. Right. So if anyone uh, again wanting to grab a copy of this book or inquire about how to get one, just contact uh, the Brunswick School, uh, and you can pro you can find their website online. Uh, contact them directly. Now, uh, now, Rob, uh, be remiss if I didn't bring up your alma mater, uh, Yale, uh, and uh, recently uh, there 
head coach of the last 38 years, Dave Talbot. He just uh, retired. Uh, You've written extensively about him in the past, about his accomplishments there and what he's done for Yale squash. I just wanted, you know, in brief, uh, you know, if if you could uh, sort of pay homage uh, to him, I know uh, how highly uh, respected you, uh, the respect that you have for him and what he's done there. So uh, just, uh, you know, what when you heard that he was going to retire and obviously you knew it was coming, uh, tell me uh, uh, what you think about uh, Dave's uh, legacy that he left behind there. I actually didn't know it was coming. I was surprised that everybody else when he announced that he was retiring. I actually have an article a retrospective on his coaching career that I just recently wrote that's going to be posted Monday on okay. daily squash on daily squash report.com. Uh, so and, give, and give, I, us, I, give us some of the, give us a thumbnail on that one. then. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, well, the retrospective, just again, it's a reflection of his career it's, it, itself. Before he became the coach at Yale, he uh, had been an active player uh, uh, first, I've been the pro at a number of different clubs, the most recent of which was the Detroit Athletic Club, uh, which he was at for five years from 78 to 83 before coming to Yale, before becoming the coach at Yale. And during that time, he played on the WPSA Pro Hardball Tour, uh, made it sort of right at the fringes of the top 15, was also the tour uh, coordinator uh, his last couple of years. So he'd, he and his brother, Mark, of Obviously course. Obviously brother to, uh, to the legend uh, hardball uh, guru, Mark Kelvin. Right. And Mark yeah. is, I think, very much considered to be the best squash player, best player in the history of American squash. He yeah. was a great hardball player. He was the number one player on U.S.'s softball teams during that time. He's the one softball player from that area, era whom most of the PSA players somewhat grudgingly admit would, would have been quite successful on their tour as well. Um, he won the North American Open doubles with Peter Briggs. Mark was a great all-around player and, and really the most – an iconic figure, certainly – in their history of squash on this continent. Dave, um, as I said, was a good solid player as well and uh, became the coach at at Yale in in 1983. Uh, He he immediately sort of infused the program. Uh, He was with his active recruiting, his outgoing personality. He set up, he he wanted, his first year as coach, he began the Yale Open, which was a very nice uh, invitational tournament that became a spot on the USSRA schedule, which brought highly ranked players to the to the to the university to practice. Mm-hmm. Play, and he would enter his varsity players so they could get match experience practicing against them. Yeah, it's a smart uh, move. Sort of to, to more summarize his career, um, he. Uh, his, his Yale team co-won the Ivy League championship in 1989, which was his sixth year there. Uh, they actually would have won it outright had they managed had they not lost to Harvard in the last match of the season. That extended Harvard's dual meet winning streak over Yale to 28 years in a row, beginning in 1962, uh, the Jack Barnaby Dave Fish group. But the following year in 1990. Uh, Yale completely swept the board. They were undefeated in the regular season, culminating with a 5-4 win over Harvard in the dual meet. And then in the Potter Cup that weekend, which only debuted the year before, previously the intercollegiates had been had been had a an A, B, and C division. The A's were for the ones and twos, the B's were for the threes and fours, the C's were for the fives and sixes, and whoever whichever 
schools players accumulated the most points at the end of the week and was declared the college champion. Starting in 1989, the Potter Cup had the top eight teams play a regular team tournament, just like the NCAA basketball does, for example. Yeah, yeah one in 89. In 90, 1990, they won. Uh, there was one player, Garrett Frank, who was who had a triple match point against him at a time when Harvard already had four points. He won those three points to win that match. And as I say, Yale won 5-4. Um, and was undefeated wire to wire that season, uh, and then uh, he's also won he's also won Potter Cups uh, in he also won the pot his team won the Potter Cup in 2016 as well. But in yes. 2005, Mark, his brother Mark coached the Yale women from '98 through '04, and his last year there, the women won the Howe Cup, which is the women's mm-hmm. national championship. Mark then left to coach at Stanford, where he's been ever since. Dave then became the coach of the women's team as well as the men's team. And he's been in that role beginning for the last 17 years. The 05 and 06 teams won the Howe Cup. So did his 2011 team. So to sort of summarize, Dave has been the head coach. Dave's been the head coach of the Yale teams that have won the national championship six times. Three Potter Cups for the men, three Howe Cups for the women. That's a, an incredible career, and we'll be able to read a little bit more about that on Daily uh, Squash Report, uh, hopefully this uh, early in the week, in the coming week. It'll be now, posted uh, on Mon- It'll be posted on Monday. Great. And now the interim uh, coach there, hopefully uh, we get to be playing squash again in the next uh, while. But, uh, who knows about that? But it's uh, Lynn Leong. Is that correct? That's correct. Lynn yeah. Leong. Was the she was the number two junior to Nicole David in when they were growing up together in Malaysia, okay. um, when they were both teenagers. She then went to Trinity College, and her sophomore, uh, her freshman year, which would which was uh, 02, 02, uh, 0102 in 02, 2002, as a freshman, she got to the finals of the indiv- in the individual intercollegiate championship. She lost to a teammate, Amina Halal. Um, and she then had a very solid, strong career at Trinity. She was she was the she was the pro at the law, the New Haven Lawn Club for a okay. number of years before sort of moving. It's only about it's only probably a half a mile or so from the Lawn Club to Payne Whitney Gymnasium at Yale to become an assistant coach there a few years ago. She's been in that role ever since. Uh, and she is, as, I, as you said, she's she was named the interim coach. I'm sure she's going to stay in the program as a probably as the women's coach. They do have yeah. a search committee to try to to find a, a, a coach for next season. There, uh, it's, you probably know that by now the the whole college winter squash the whole college squash season has been canceled officially. So there are not yeah. going to be any. Dual meets any Potter Cup, any How Cup, any tournament. No college squash at all this year, and hopefully by next fall things will be resolved enough for for there to be a full college squash season in 2021-22. She'll be there in some capacity, but if I believe there's going to be there'll be somebody else who'll be brought in to coach the men. Right. Well, let's fingers crossed. Let's hope that uh, you know we do get some squash uh, there, collegiate squash uh, back. Yeah, uh, next season, and it's terrible. There really was there. had been hope that they could somehow salvage this season, but this virus has been too relentless and too long lasting. Yeah, 
And how does it uh, look in terms of, uh, I wouldn't be, uh, I'd be remiss also if I didn't, if I didn't ask you about uh, the hardball double scene, the pro scene. Uh, what, what's the ha- forecast there? <laughs> not happening this season. I no. mean, nothing's been officially called off yet, but there have been no events. There are none scheduled. Uh, Squashes, uh, as I said, I think the last time we spoke, uniquely ill-suited to this virus. Um, yeah. you're, you're right. Well, there's you're no there's playing. no squash. I mean, you're you're lucky to be. You're. I mean, I'm lucky to be able to play here. Our courts are open, but uh, you know, I think that's the exception to to the rule right now. Right. I mean, the two the players are right on top of each other, and they're breathing each other's forcefully expelled air right deep right into their wide open lungs it's it, it just tennis is a hundred percent safer and doubles that situation if anything is even worse because you've got four people in a very small group like that small bunch uh, space, space like that and it's an enclosed space to begin with so uh, there's nothing's been officially canceled yet in terms of this season but i would be shocked if there's any uh, SDA doubles event or any doubles event of any sort this season, hopefully we can reload in the in the fall and have a full 21-22 season. Does that have uh, implications, Rob? I mean, not not uh, being able to run a season. How how would that impact uh, you know the quality or, or you know the the viability of it? Uh, going forward or is it self-sustainable that the hardball doubles? I think it, I think, I mean, we don't know yet, but I think it'll have a major impact. I mean, you, for, for someone to just miss an entire competitive season, uh, you know, that's, that's a big, that's a chunk of their career. And there's some people. What I mean, what I'm getting at is in terms, you know, the PSA, they're going to really struggle now to, to get things back to where they, they once were. I mean, it's sort of, uh, depends highly upon, you know, big, spo- you know, not big sponsors, but sponsors to, to help uh, run the show. But it just seems like the hardball double scene, even, you know, it does have sponsors, but it's sort of the, you know, the private clubs that accommodate these things. It definitely is. And in those, and the galleries are not that big and everybody's even more on top of each other in a doubles gallery than they, than they are on the court or in a singles gallery. And also one of the keys to the, to the success of these pro doubles events is the pro-am where each, where pro is matched up with an amateur member who pays a certain amount of money for the right to participate in the pro-am. That's going to be, that's going to be thrown askew also uh, just because of the, danger involved at the moment in playing the sport with such a contagious virus literally hovering in the air so uh, i think i think i think everybody's going to have to be very reassured and very confident that the between the vaccinations and uh and uh, other preventive measures that it's safe to play i mean these doubles events all have huge saturday night parties mm. where it's so crammed that there's you can't move yeah how are those things going to happen in, in the current climate? Yeah. Well, let's hope, uh, you know, the vaccine. Uh, I, I'd had my first uh, my first dose uh, last week of the, the Sinopharm vaccine. Let's hope uh, things go well with uh, whatever vaccine. I guess it's the Pfizer vaccine that most people are talking about in the U.S. Hopefully that, uh, you know. There's the Moderna also and some others are coming out. But there's also yeah. some strains that are suddenly emerging, too, of the virus. Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, at this point, I I mean, I think next season is far from certain. I think there's a good chance it'll happen. I hope it will happen. But nobody with 4,000 people in the the U.S. alone dying every single day. I mean, there's nobody can absolutely with assurance say that by October, 
everything will be back to the way it was before this started. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's not, it's a grim looking uh, picture, but, uh, you know, fingers crossed, uh, hopefully things will improve next year. Uh, definitely not this year, like you said. A lot of PSA, uh, some, a, a number of PSA players have retired in the past mm, couple yeah, of months. Recent, yeah, several. And in some cases, I'm sure that was, that was somewhat tied to the uncertainty yeah. about what's ahead. I mean, uh, look at. I mean, there's no pro squash uh, happening right now, and nothing in the in the foreseeable future. Nothing going on. So uh, yeah, it's you know these guys with who were dependent upon uh, you know prize money from from squash tournaments are having to you know look elsewhere for for a paycheck. Yeah, or for or or dependent on giving lessons or coaching, which yeah. is also uh, you know a, a down to a trickle. Absolutely. Now, now, Rob, you've been, uh, again, really fantastic. And I, I always get really, uh, I'm really excited uh, to have you on here. Uh, is there any, uh, anything in the works? What's next? I, I was thinking, uh, why not, why not write a book on Heights Casino? Uh, Heights Casino, that would be, that'd be, <laughs> that would be exciting. That's a very, yeah. very intimate, cozy club. Mm. Uh, with, a lot of history um, there. A lot of history there. And that gallery, more than any other, by the way, is a gallery with, with, with the people are right on top of each other because there's not much room between the different rows. And that, that yeah. tournament, the and the they have a, they have actually the, the Carol Weinmuller event, yeah, which is a pretty important stop on the women's PSA tour. Yeah. That was actually the tournament at which Renim El Walili had her first truly breakout great tournament. Uh, that was in the fall of 2011. I was fortunate to be covering that event at the time. And yeah. she beat um, Perry and uh, uh, Jenny Duncalf in the semis and final. Right. Jenny was a several-time defending champion, a big favorite. She, I have never play, seen the game played with such imagination and grace and oh, creativity. She's, she's amazing to watch, isn't she? Uh, she reminds and, me, her, her and Shabana play similarly that way just free flowing you know beautiful squash in so many ways the creativity level and the and the there's melting drop shots and these wonderful yeah. i mean she was a it was like watching a poet yeah absolutely yeah but uh, you know uh, i had uh was Haley uh, mendez on uh, a few episodes ago so she she's someone who uh, who grew up on that course. yes yeah yeah she absolutely uh, did yeah, but uh, you know, I was thinking, you know, Rob, why why not uh, uh, a great book on that court, on that club, and not only about you know, you know, uh, what's gone on there, but all the the various uh, you know head pros that have been through that club over the years have been so many. There have been some uh, some amazing one, and of course, Linda Elriani is one of the most personable members who ever played on the women's pro tour. Um, that event, the doubles part, is famous for the kids, the little kids lying on their stomachs uh, under the, the legs of the people in the front row and watching the action from, from that spot huh, right. Uh, right above on. the, above the play. So, well, that, 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 that's what I mean. There, there's probably so much, you, there are so many uh, uh, places where you, you could just say, uh, write about this or write about that. Do you have anything in the, in the works? Uh, well, I am most of the way through. I mean, this past uh, year or so, I've been working both on the Brunswick uh, squash history, but also I've been writing and I've now finished the manuscript for a history of Princeton tennis. Um, okay. Ah. The the longtime tennis coach there, David Benjamin, who was the executive director of the International uh, the Intercoll Intercollegiate Tennis Association for several decades, he actually coached the squash team 
at Princeton also his first four years as tennis coach, meaning 74 to 78. So I interviewed him extensively when I wrote the Princeton squash book uh, a few years ago. And during those interviews, I think he became interested in, uh, he's wanted for decades, I've been told, to have a history of Princeton tennis written. And uh, reading the squash book I wrote and during the interviews we had, he became more interested in, in pushing for a Princeton tennis book. That was approved. And, he would have uh, been coaching against McEnroe then, wouldn't he? Uh, he actually had a he had an interesting um, as it happens the number uh, well not only did he coach against McEnroe but uh, one of the one of the, a book he wrote in the late seventies one of the, the second the first half is instruction the second half actually dissects the nineteen seventy eight NCAA tennis championships in which McEnroe's Stanford team won the tournament and in which McEnroe himself then won the individual tournament. Okay. And then turned pro right after that, and you know was a great player right after that. But by then, the previous summer, McEnroe had gotten to the semis of Wimbledon, right after in '77, and in the, pre, the previous Nets. year. Okay, yes. So he still then, he still had another year of eligibility playing for for Stanford. He had he wasn't even in Stanford yet when he got to the semis of the U.S. Open in '77. Yeah. He had just graduated from high school. Oh, okay, okay. He went to Stanford his freshman year, led them to the national team championship, won the individual championship, and then turned pro. He only right. played. He was only at Stanford for one year. One year. Okay. Oh, that's amazing. Well, that'll that'll be uh, well worth uh, waiting for. Then maybe a few uh, few stories like coming that. out. It's coming out in March, okay. and um, I feel very good about uh, the way it's coming together. I think people are going to really enjoy it. Cheers, Rob. Take care. Be safe. Be healthy, and uh, talk to you soon. Many thanks. You as well. Take care. Always great having Rob on. Many thanks for that. Lots of insight there on all aspects of the game, the varsity situation, the COVID situation, the pro doubles tour situation. Rob's always uh, a great uh, guy to talk to about that stuff. And as I'd like to say, he's forgotten more about the uh, the game than I'll ever know. He, he's a fountain of knowledge uh, when it comes to uh, that kind of thing, the historical side of the game. And a good pro uh, doubles player himself back in the day, and I think, still think he's still uh, giving it a go on the on the pro doubles tour. But uh, again, thanks again uh, to Rob for, for episode 145. And uh, thank all of you for listening. Uh, uh, please continue to listen. Uh, we're up on uh, all uh, podcast apps, as far as I know, uh, Google Play, Spotify, iTunes. Uh, we're up, of course, our main page is the SoundCloud page. But please go there, share it with your friends, give us a like, give us a review. Uh, let me know what you think. I'm on most media platforms, Twitter, uh, in- Instagram more recently. My daughter's running that website for me, by the way. And um, uh, Facebook, I'm famously on, on Facebook and contributing on, on all of those uh, platforms. So please uh, get in touch with me that way if you feel uh Feel, if you feel like it. Now, uh, coming up uh, later this week, we've got Arthur Gaskin. Uh, a great chat with him. We just, I just had that chat, and uh, we'll be talking about uh, quite a bit with that eight-time Irish national and reigning Irish national champion. So stay tuned for that. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. Take care and have a great day. Goodbye now. <laughs>